Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome you, not to sound too much like a cross between the owner of the Kit Kat Club and Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek. If you're joining us at the time of broadcast from the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, the Republic of Ireland, or South Africa, then thank you for joining Single Malt History with me, Gareth Russell, this week from London in release week for my new book, The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of History at Hampton Court. If you're tuning in from Canada, the United States, or the Philippines, then I'm looking forward to being across the Atlantic for December 5th for the palace's release. And believe me, the US, Canadian, and Philippine edition is beautiful. I really hope people will enjoy it. Each chapter in my new book focuses on a different room in a different decade through the experiences of a different person who lived, loved, and maybe even laughed at Hampton Court over the centuries. As I mentioned in my author's note, uh, which is out in hardback and audio, there are so many stories in Hampton Court's half-millennium history that it was practically impossible to include them all without producing a book that would have been large enough to perform double duty as a sturdy piece of furniture. I had to pick historical episodes that furthered the book's focus, which is really the story of Britain told through this extraordinary, wonderful building, its four nations and their monarchy as it wove together through incredible human achievement and at incredible human cost. The book has chapters focusing on the royals like Anne Boleyn's first residency as Queen at Hampton Court in 1533, her stepdaughter Mary's mysterious pregnancy of 1555, and King William III's grand redesigns in 1699. It has aristocrats too, like Part 1, Chapter 4's, Tudor Lady-in-Waiting and Bassett, Chapter 7, which looks at Edward VI's Irish best friend, Barnaby Fitzpatrick, and when we reach Part 3, three chapters looking at the House of Hanover, you'll meet bed-hopping, camp, vicious and brilliant Lord Harvey, who knew everyone worth knowing in Georgian high society and quite a few who weren't. There are also theologians, republicans and royal mistresses, Tudor kitchen staff, Elizabethan gardeners, Georgian chocolatiers and Edwardian lamplighters, all of whom can remind us that a palace like a nation is never just the stories of the great and the famous. But what to do with some of the stories I wanted to tell? Well, I set aside six of them exclusively to wet the whistle of single malt listeners, of course, but also to say... A very sincere thank you for all of your likes, your encouragement and your support over the past few years um, as I've been working on this book and on this podcast as well. I don't take any of that, any of the support for granted. I'll tell three of these six stories this summer and autumn and three in winter to celebrate the American, Canadian and Philippine release. And the first of those six is the story of Henry VII's visit to Hampton Court. Because although we often associated this most magnificent of palaces with the chaotic splendor of Henry VIII, it's to his father's reign that we should turn if we want to understand Hampton Court's rise to national significance.
It's the autumn of 1500, and the kitchens at Hampton Court are a place of effort, sweat, and stress. The palace itself does not yet exist. Hampton Court is a luxurious but medium-sized manor on the banks of the Thames River, far enough outside London to escape the ever-present stench and the annual summer revivals of the plague. The estate is owned by a monastic order who for years have made a tidy supplemental sum, renting out Hampton Court to the great and good, who then as now know that a country spot outside the capital is just as important to their prestige and even more important to their comfort as a place in London. In 1495, Hampton Court's owners had begun renting the estate to the courtier Sir Giles Daubeny, a tall and athletic knight greatly admired for his remarkable bravery in battle. For his loyalty to England's King Henry VII, Daubeny was elevated from a knighthood to the peerage, becoming Baron Daubeny and Lord Chamberlain, the courtier in charge of running the royal household. Lord Daubeny's privileges had led to a privileged lease, whereby he was allowed to make changes to Hampton Court during his tenure, as or tenancy, sorry, as if he owned it. Of the buildings constructed on Lord Daubeny's orders during his time at Hampton Court, only some of his kitchens survive, and they can be visited in the present. If you're going to Hampton Court, I cannot recommend them highly enough. They're other. Oh, fascinating and there's such a sense of history in them and of time and place. For many years they were incorrectly believed to be a relic from Henry VIII's era but recent research has established that much of the great kitchens date from Lord Daubeny's tenancy. Servants are turning the spits as they roast meats in the enormous fireplaces while in a smaller fireplace nearby colleagues are boiling fish and meat. Society in the year of grace 1500 is hierarchical, in obedience to God, who in heaven, purgatory and earth has installed inequalities as proof of his will. Service in return for protection is an inescapable part of political and social interactions in early modern England, in which even the greatest landowners with many dependents of their own are themselves regarded as servants to the king. Rank and precedence hold this system together, shaping everything from high court ceremonial to everyday interactions. Contemporary manners manuals, for instance, advised servants that if ye see any person better than yourself come in, ye go backwards anon and give him place and in no wise turn your face from him. Such politeness to their betters was not always possible for those with heavier chores in the kitchen, such as those men and boys turning the spits who could not reasonably be expected to let go every time they were passed by one of their superiors, such as the household stewards, who, among many other things, were tasked with inspecting Lord Daubeny's store of wine and ale. In October 1500, that also meant keeping an eye on the 312 additional caskets of expensive Malmsey wine, all paid for by the royal household and sent to Hampton Court to equip the manor for the honour of a visit from the king. Malmsey wine's reputation was by turns delicious and deadly, 
It was a favourite among the English upper classes, particularly the late Duke of Clarence, whom gossip claimed had loved it so much that his brother, King Edward IV, had evinced a somewhat peculiar interpretation of fraternal mercy by allowing Clarence to be drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine in punishment for supporting yet another plot against him. Historical anecdotes like an anaphiliac prince who was asphyxiated in his favourite vintage typically prove too good to be true. And I will take a moment to say I'm absolutely delighted I got that in one take and very, very surprised. Such anecdotes typically prove too good to be true in the ilk of other memorably ridiculous canards, like Catherine the Great's gravity-defying horse, Marie Antoinette's uncharacteristically cruel promotion of pastries, or Emperor Nero's impromptu musical concert next to an urban inferno. However, in the Duke of Clarence's case, this colourful story associated with him may in fact be true. Either way, the grim role, whether rumoured or correct, played by Mamsey Wine in the Duke of Clarence's demise had in no way diluted the next generation's enthusiasm for it. Once they received their instructions from the vigilant stewards, Lord Daubeny's servants carried the decanted wine and spitshorn meats up from the kitchen to Hampton Court's Great Hall, another addition installed by their wealthy master. The Great Hall in which this episode or anecdote is set and to which the servants are ascending is on the same site as today's Great Hall at Hampton Court. But the the Great Hall that we see, that we visit, was built on the orders of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and it replaced Dubonese. So the what the servants would have seen is a less magnificent hall, although still a very impressive one, as they slipped into this medieval hall, thick with smoke and the sound of voices. They stood by the walls, holding their wine and the meat, as a priest offered benediction in Latin before the meal was served to the four tables that ran the length of the hall. All men present in the great hall were expected to remove their hats while the priest intoned the grace. Henry VII, England's king for the last 15 years, ran a pious court, rich in the flavour of medieval Christianity's kinesthetic spirituality. That tone was partly set by the king's mother Margaret, Countess of Richmond and Derby. As far as we can tell, she was not at Hampton Court with her son for his visit in 1500, but she certainly encouraged his deep Christian faith and emulated it herself. For instance, Margaret maintained the apostolic number of 12 paupers in her household, where she served them their meals personally during any illnesses and worked as a nurse at their deathbeds. So who are the guests in the Hampton Court Great Hall on this crisp autumn evening in 1500? Well, there's the King's advisor and former secretary, Bishop Oliver King, who in keeping with that just-mentioned theme of emphatic piety, had only recently launched an investigation against heresy in his diocese of Bath and Wells. Bishop King had also recently experienced a miraculous vision in the form of a dream, similar to the patriarch Jacob's dream of angels descending upon ladders from heaven in the Bible. In Bishop's Bishop King's case, the dream had urged him to rebuild the Church of Bath Abbey, which he proceeded to transform magnificently with a promise that, 
There shall be none so goodly, neither in England nor in France. The bishop's piety is shared by fellow diner and courtier Sir Richard Guilford, who, a few years after this banquet, will be devout enough to leave England to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he will fall ill and die, choosing to be buried there on Mount Zion, believed to be the site of the Last Supper, Pentecost, and the tomb of King David. Of more worldly concern is the secular splendour of the Queen's cousin, the Duke of Buckingham, said to be the best-dressed man in England. Much of their talk over this wine and good food at Hampton has to have been over who would emerge as the King's next chief political advisor. Only a few weeks before this visit to Hampton Court, Henry VII had lost his chief advisor, his Lord Chancellor, confidant and Archbishop of Canterbury. The septuagenarian Cardinal John Morton, who was carried off into the grave with four Episcopal colleagues by the plague that swept through England that summer. Cardinal Morton had perhaps been the man Henry VII trusted the most, as one who had joined Henry's cause when he was still in exile before he became king. And Morton had even journeyed at great risk and personal expense to Rome to secure the Vatican's blessing for the Tudor cause. Cardinal Morton's death greatly grieved the king. It also removed a moderating influence who had ameliorated Henry VII's increasingly frequent spells of paranoia, the consequences of which would become clearer in the final half-decade of Henry's rule. By the time the court arrived as Lord Daubeny's guests in October, the first month in the 30 years of requiem masses requested by Cardinal Morton had been offered up in Cambridge, Eli and Bear Regis. The 1,000 marks he had set aside to care for impoverished invalids were being distributed, along with the university scholarships for 30 students from poor families, while the Cardinal's body had been laid to rest at Canterbury Cathedral beneath a plain marble slab in front of a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as per his final will and testament. Although Henry VII had a great deal of affection for his friend and host, Lord Daubeny, there was absolutely no question that Daubeny would succeed Cardinal Morton as Lord Chancellor. Daubeny was a gifted warrior and a loyal courtier, but no more. When it came to politics, he was a superb middle-of-the-road man. That was the key ingredient to his success. He was devoid of the shrewdness of men like the late Cardinal Morton. And while he was extremely wealthy thanks to Henry VII's trust in him personally, Daubeny and the king knew his limitations. Which brings us to the king. Lord, were all the men gathered around Hampton Court's four tables, in a hall that was warmed on cooler evenings by its hearth encircled by a low iron railing at the centre of the room. Henry VII was, at 43 years old, tall, with dark eyes, lean and still physically active. We know, or we're almost certain, that Lord Daubeny installed Hampton Court's first tennis court for Henry VII's enjoyment in that first visit of 1500. The king was also devoutly religious, as mentioned, faithful to his popular and beautiful wife, Queen Elizabeth, and still, despite those 15 years on the throne, largely a mystery to many of his courtiers and most of his subjects. 
Henry had been born in Wales during the civil wars over the succession to the throne that would later be referred to as the Wars of the Roses. His father died in prison, his mother had to remarry, and because of his family's loyalty to his paternal uncle, King Henry VI, young Henry had to flee abroad as a teenager when Uncle Henry was deposed and then later murdered. Henry was granted asylum in the dukedom, excuse me, the Duchy of Brittany, uh, which was then an independent state, although Henry would later have to escape it too, this time in disguise, riding hell for leather to the Breton border with France, after the future Cardinal Morton managed to warn him in time of King Richard III of England's plans to have Henry kidnapped and brought back to England under the terms of a secret extradition deal he was negotiating with Brittany. Poets and bards in his native Wales had compared Henry Tudor to the biblical heroes Moses and Joshua, but there was a reciprocal lack of familiarity between himself and the people of England. When aged 28, he won its crown in battle, having spent half his life living in Brittany or France at that stage. Henry attempted sensibly to remedy the risks of ruling as a perceived stranger by surrounding himself with those who had served in the administrations of his predecessors, even those who had once been conspicuously loyal to the rival Royal House of York were accepted back into government service, provided they swore the requisite oaths of allegiance. Of those who crossed the floor in 1485, none was more important than the woman Henry VII married, Richard III's niece, Elizabeth of York. Theirs was a political marriage designed first and foremost to end the civil wars by uniting the two rival branches of the royal line. Elizabeth, along with her mother-in-law Margaret, had a grasp of etiquette and the politics of display which they used to give the new king's household the appearance of the court of a confident, divinely ordained monarch, ruling from what one contemporary called all his goodly houses, so richly decked and apparelled, his walls and galleries of royal pleasure, his gardens large and wide with knots curiously wrought, his orchards set with vines and trees most delicious, his marvellous richness and treasure, his meats and drinks were they never so diligently prepared. No pressure for the Hampton Court staff hosting him. Henry and Elizabeth had many children together, of which the eldest, Prince Arthur, was heir to the throne. Arthur was the same age in 1500 as his father had been when he first fled into exile. But instead of panicked provisions for life in the unknown, Prince Arthur's greatest concern were the preparations for his forthcoming wedding to Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish king and queen's daughter. Spain's conditions for sending one of their princesses to England had been harsh. Catherine of Aragon was, after all, the first foreign princess to risk marriage into the unstable English monarchy for half a century. To ensure that Catherine and Arthur never shared his father's experiences of peripatetic poverty, the Spanish government insisted that Henry remove the last of the internal threats against him. There had been too many pretenders, too many uprisings in the Earl of Warwick's name, and so the Spanish insisted he mount the scaffold before Catherine board a ship. The 24-year-old Earl of Warwick was the son of the prince who drowned in the Monsey wine. To fulfil the Spanish marriage treaty's conditions, 
Lord Warwick left the Tower of London, where he'd spent most of his adult life in genteel imprisonment, to kneel before the headsman's axe 11 months before Henry VII's visit to Hampton Court. According to Polydore Virgil, an Italian monk then resident at the English court, Lord Warwick's execution had caused Henry VII many a sleepless night, for the king, like nearly everybody else, could see how manifestly unjust the execution was. It was seen by many, perhaps even by King Henry himself, as the judicial slaughter of a sheltered innocent, who died because of his ancestry and because of plots launched in his name but without his knowledge. Yet it is worth remembering that despite his conscience-addled insomnia, Henry VII had signed the death warrant. And in doing so, he had rid himself of a spectral threat to his regime, while simultaneously securing the sought-after alliance with Spain, whose ambassador in London wrote home that Henry's rule is undisputed, and his government is strong in all respects. Not a doubtful drop of royal blood remains in the kingdom. The fate of the Earl of Warwick is a good reminder that brutal pragmatism lurked beneath the piety of Tudor England, much as the toil and labour of the kitchen staff lurked beneath the splendour of the guests in the hall. The kitchens and a later visit to Hampton Court by Henry VII's wife, Elizabeth of York, as well as the private life of Lord Dobony, form the basis of Chapter 1 in the palace along with a, for me anyway, very surprising link between Hampton Court and Lady Godiva. Thank you so much for joining me. The Palace is available for British, Irish, Australian, Kiwi and South African readers now. I've been Gareth Russell and join me next week for another episode of Single Malt History in which I'll be taking a look at the Crusader Queen Berengaria, who according to legend was the only Queen of England never to set foot in the country, and after that, profiling a fascinating new book on recipients of America's Purple Heart. In the meantime, don't forget to like, subscribe, and check me out on Instagram at underscore Gareth Russell or Facebook, Gareth Russell, historian and author. Most importantly of all, have a great, safe week. Thank you and take care.